0: Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking.
1: From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia.
0: Welcome to a special on-the-road episode of Breaking Banks Asia. We must apologize for the audio quality as none of us are in our usual studios. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, coming to you from the islands of Palawan in the Philippines. And I'd like to welcome my co-host, Simon Spencer, CTO for Trideca, who's in Singapore and deep into a hectic Singapore FinTech Festival schedule already. And I'd like to welcome our special guest this episode, Standard Chartered Group CEO Bill Winters, who is also in Singapore for the Fintech Festival. Bill, I don't think you need much of an intro, but just for those of our audience who don't know your fascinating history, Bill is an American-British banker who made his name at J.P. Morgan. During the global financial crisis, he led the integration of what remained of Bear Stearns after its collapse, and later he warned J.P. Morgan of the risks it was taking before that $6 billion trading loss in 2012. That happened after he'd left to set up a hedge fund and then joined Standard Chartered in 2015. Welcome, Bill. Evidence would suggest that any apocalyptic disruption of banking has been overhyped. But what has Standard Chartered learned from fintechs? And how do you see the bank working alongside and competing with fintechs?
2: Yeah, look, I I love fintechs. Uh, I'm at the fintech festival in Singapore this week. I was at the fintech festival in, in Hong Kong last week. Uh, We have investments in 40 fintechs. We have partnerships with probably 300 fintechs. And why? Well, because in many cases, this is a group of people with a good idea, uh, with good technical skills, who built a a usable bit of uh, functionality. And for the most part, their customers are existing financial services players. They're not trying to usurp the role of of banks or asset managers or or insurance companies that they're, they're providing a service into. Uh, and that's that's highly valued. Is the fintech the the, the, the aggregate of fintech investment generating a good return for their investors? You know, I'm not sure. I think probably more likely now than when money was being thrown into that industry. But I think they're probably earning an acceptable rate of return, and that's an acceptable cost for us to play to get some to, to pay to get some best in class thinking. And obviously, we only partner with the fintechs that we think are best in class. We don't need to, to, to partner with fintechs that we don't think are best in class. So I, th- I think broadly I'm very positive uh clearly there are some fintechs have been set up let's say starting with the payment space that that are usurping the business of banks and uh, and they've done that by offering a better set of products and services in particular in the digital economy but but not limited to that and uh, they've created tremendous value for their customers and therefore for themselves and I think we've learned from that that model of innovation, and you know solving customer problems starting with, with typically with something quite narrow and then broadening out as you as you understand the customer better and i think we've learned a lot about that it is, it's it's helped us tremendously in our own uh, venture building business where we've got world-class cryptocurrency or, or digital asset custodians and, and marketplaces now we've got a b2b sme marketplace in india that we rolled out to uh, to kenya and uh, and ghana and vietnam Uh, We've got a banking as a service model that we've launched with the largest e-commerce platform in Indonesia, et cetera, et cetera. So we're the fintech in that case. I mean, we're we're the one that's building the fintech. And in all of those cases, we've got fintechs as our partners or or service providers or both. And I think that the banks have learned how to go head to head with with the most innovative fintechs out there. There's another category, which is not fintechs, which are the, the very large convenience platforms. And uh, obviously, start with the big, uh, the big tech companies. But that—that's uh, a different kettle of fish. Uh, and I think ultimately, if Apple, Google, Facebook, uh, you know, Reliance, Geo, Alibaba, Ants, WeBank, uh, just to pick a few of the obvious examples, if they want to penetrate big chunks of the convenience economy, so call it the mass market, uh, where transactions lend themselves to automation and convenience. Uh, they can take big chunks of that market share. And we've seen that happen already in, in, in some very specific things like uh, like payment platforms with Apple and Google Pay. But there's a reason they haven't come in and skimmed all the cream out of the banking industry. It's because they don't want to be banks. And and I can tell you, as the CEO of a bank, there's a good reason not to want to be a bank if you're trading at, at, uh, at a very nice earnings multiple with uh, lots of free cash flow and very little capital deployed, because banking is the opposite of all that. Uh, regulation is quite oppressive. Uh, it's intended to protect the system. And now, so I think we'll constantly have tech companies, fintech or otherwise, coming in to try to skim some of the cream without crossing the line into being regulated like a bank. And uh, that allows us all to exist quite happily, I think, for for some time. But if banks don't innovate at roughly the same pace as the fintech community is innovating, either by usurption, i.e., you know, taking their services in, or through our native innovation, then, of course, we'll lose. And some banks will lose. But other banks, and I'm counting Senator Chartered as one of them, uh, will not only hold its own, but actually thrive in that ecosystem.
0: You say that fintechs don't want to become banks, and yet uh, Indonesia is one country where fintechs are buying banks. Philippines is similar, from my understanding. So there is a sense that fintechs do want to become banks, or they feel like they need to become banks in order to make more money than just being a middleman. So how does that fit into that idea that the fintechs are there to skim off the cream um, the banks are there to do the heavy lifting
2: Yeah uh, so there are some some fintechs and and you have people that grab and C in mind I'm sure uh, who have actually bought banks in Indonesia once they are banks and, and, and you know grab and Singtel have uh, have set up a digital bank in Singapore We have the leading digital bank in Singapore by a lot and with you know outstanding customer satisfaction scores. And in fact, it's the fastest growing digital bank in the world. It's happening in, in a relatively small market, but we, we've got 12% of the bankable population have opened accounts with us in less than one year, which is unprecedented. Why? Because it's an excellent technical app with an excellent partner. Our partner is the Fair Price Group, which is the largest grocery store chain in, in Singapore. And you know, they were not going to build their own bank. They could have. They could have applied for a digital digital bank license all by themselves, but they didn't want to do that. They wanted to partner with who they consider to be a best in class technical partner. Others uh, who are FinTechs have, or or tech companies, convenience platforms, have decided to buy a bank. And once they own the bank, their whole company is a bank and they'll be treated like a bank. And I, I say to them, good luck, you know, good luck. I hope you enjoy it. It's different than being a tech company.
1: Bill, thank you for that. Many organisations have created labs and incubators and hubs to promote innovation. But as someone who's run a few of these ministries of shiny things, how do you get beyond that sort of innovation theatre and how do you drive that cultural change and how do you instil a culture of innovation in an organisation that prides itself on being conservative?
2: Well, I, I don't know that we have a secret sauce. The, the the proof of the pudding will be in the eating, but but so far the, the morsels that have come out have been pretty effective. So probably 70% of the innovation capital that we deployed is not in our ventures lab. It's in it's in the main businesses. So innovative partnerships in in trade finance or you know, this this banking as a service model in Indonesia, which did have the technology built in our ventures lab, but but all of the application is actually in our retail business. The digital banks were were created, so Mox and Hong Kong Trust in Singapore were created under the leadership of our of our retail bank management, but with of course with guidance and advice from the venture arm as well. So that the bulk of the, the innovation capital is, is happening in, in intimate integration with with our business. Within our ventures lab, we've we've got SE uh, SC ventures, we've got a few underlying approaches. One is we will invest in many things. Uh we've invested in in dozens of uh in small scales, but dozens of internal ventures that we think have a some prospect of changing a fundamental nature of banking. So things that wouldn't be done inside the main business. Uh, we pretty aggressively call those things as we, so we, we've had 2,700 or something like that submissions into our intrapreneur program. These are employees that have, it's a competition. Uh, they they pitch for sponsorship and funding and we winnow it down, winnow it down, winnow it down, winnow it down. We've had a few great successes. This card spell that I mentioned earlier was came out of our innovation, uh, our intrapreneur program. And then we'll, we'll, we'll ramp up our investment in those things. We've had other ventures that, that we've intended to be substantial from the outset, the 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 couple of uh, ventures that we built in in digital assets, Zodiac Custody and Zodiac Markets, uh, this B two B platform called Solve that, that we set up, the the banking as a service, that Indonesia Malaysia and then uh, we'll roll out to other markets. You know, Autumn, which is a wealth management platform, right? these things we've invested in substantially from the outset, with with a recognition that most will have some sort of a course correct over time, and then we'll we'll judge as these things develop. Are these likely to be exploiting adjacencies to our core business model or are they are they likely uh, to not develop adjacencies to our core business model? If they're developing adjacencies, we're going to try to bring it closer to home and, and really exploit the linkages to the core business model. And If they're veering away, which is okay, it's absolutely okay, then we're likely to sell it or, or merge into something that, that brings it back closer to home. Uh, and we're just at the phase now where you know some of our, our key ventures, we we sold minority stakes in a few of our bigger ventures, which would suggest that they've been quite successful investments. Uh, we've closed some ventures that we said that there's not an external uh opportunity and that there's no obvious adjacency to exploit. Uh so those are the write-offs. Not many, but we've had some. And uh and we'll continue with with that. And we'll try to get the balance right between you know fostering innovation at, at the grassroots. Uh bringing home things that need to be brought home without ever giving the impression that if it doesn't get brought home, it's not valuable. And then we've got a a third arm, which is is investing in fintechs. And we've only invested in fintechs with whom we have substantial business dealings already. So they're a service provider to us, or we're partnered with them uh, in some venture, uh, which gives us a real insight into why we think this is a valuable investment. And our track record is very good with those investments. We've had very few monetizations out of that because it's a relatively young portfolio but the uh the indications are that, that we will generate good returns on those investments. Open question how scalable it is given we're only investing in things that we know very well but we've had plenty of opportunity to deploy quite significant capital for us into these into these ventures with small tickets you know 5 or 10% 5 or 10 million dollars uh you know 30 or 40 companies in the portfolio. You
1: know, it, it
2: adds up to something meaningful.
1: Bill, thank you for that. Do you see a world or do you see some convergence happening between these different technologies that people are, uh, are talking about? So you've got large language models and AI, you've got blockchain and you've got smart contracts. Are you seeing some of these technologies actually starting to converge and becoming a common used to build innovative financial services solutions?
2: I, I wouldn't say I see them converging, but I see the the uh, many use cases that are cutting across those uh, those three particular vectors that you talked about. I, I think the, the the way that we're processing data and and deriving learnings and then offerings from data has changed fundamentally in the last few years, and and will continue to do so uh, both through the the, the conventional uh, large models and, and and learning modules, but also through uh, generative AI, which will uh, obviously drive a whole new. Set of applications uh, targeted directly at at users of of data services uh, without requiring the, the same degree of, of data competence in house. Uh, how does that interact with 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 distributed ledger technology? Well, I think extensively. I think a, a lot of the the, the DLT applications uh, have been have been determined to be a, a little bit clunky or uh, or actually inefficient, even if they're of higher quality. So finding ways to Sort of scan the the investment universe or the processing universe for optimized applications. So, where is DLT an, an appropriate platform, and and where is it not? I think AI tools can can help uh, in terms of of scanning the, the hundreds of millions of, of possible applications in in a way that the humans probably uh, couldn't achieve with the same level of of rigor and timeliness. So, I think these 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 different technologies are are, are completely distinct, actually but uh, they will leverage each other into usefulness as as we're looking for optimized use cases.
0: At Breaking Banks Asia, we cover the inside stories, the emerging themes, and the exciting people participating in Asia's banking and fintech sectors. If you want to reach our dedicated and growing audience, which includes listeners from government regulators to people at the top of Asia's fintech and banking companies. Reach out to Breaking Banks Asia on LinkedIn or go to www.provoke.fm. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and on Breaking Banks Asia, you're here with my co-host, Simon Spencer, and we're talking to Standard Chartered Group CEO, Bill Winters. Simon, so I'll throw to you.
1: Thank you. Are you seeing a point that is becoming where these technologies are going to become very, very relevant? So the provenance, the, the capabilities of blockchain, the ability for you using it for for money laundering and surveillance and traceability and those sorts of things. Do you see that maturing over the next sort of two, three years a little bit more clearly than it perhaps did over the last two or three years, where there was a fair fair bit of confusion? I think so.
2: I think so. But you know, I, I think in in some ways. Uh, the, the the rapid uh, ascent if we can call it that of cryptocurrencies yep uh, it, it was uh, a blessing because it, it brought attention to some of the underlying technology for some of these cases that, that I mentioned earlier around mm-hmm. uh, around convenience cost uh fraud prevention etc obviously the cryptocurrencies took on a life of them, of their own and became vehicles for speculation and uh, and criminal activity and, and other things. Wasn't the primary motivation or wasn't even the primary use case, but but it was there. And we have obviously had tremendous speculative hype and then a, a wonderful speculative collapse along with some of the key players in the industry. It takes the attention away from the underlying technology, which is related to the use cases that, that we talked about a bit earlier. So I would hope that in the next couple of years, uh, that you know, number one, the the real world applications and, and usefulness of cryptocurrencies would become more clear, and that the technology on which cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency trading has been developed uh, would be applied to uh, the 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 broader elements of both the the, the defi world uh, but also uh, the real world i don't want to suggest the defi world isn't real but it's it's uh, it's real in a different way but in addition to the, to the world where we can migrate the, the the trading and settlement of physical assets into digital form and and having digital currencies as an integral part of that ecosystem, is, it's necessary for the efficient settlement of real world or, or real asset tokenized transactions. So I, I think we've got a, you know, a really interesting opportunity in the next couple of years to leave some of the hype behind and focus on um, the value of the underlying technology that's been built, much of it thanks to cryptocurrencies, and uh, and see if we can create a, a much more efficient, more transparent more fair financial system that that many, many, many more people can participate in directly.
0: In terms of use cases, do you see a future where we might see a smart or or sentient or semi-sentient bank account or card, one that's able to mentor, engage, coach customers one-on-one and help them do things like pay your mortgage off? Faster, Cypher. Absolutely,
2: them. absolutely. And I, I think we, we've had sort of early stage uh, experiments with some of that space already. Obviously, there there are lots of robo advisors out there, and you know they, they tend to be standalone applications that that a consumer or saver can plug into, get some advice, and then decide what they want to do about it. Now, many of those are linked through to execution engines. Uh, so once you've taken the advice and incorporated your your own view, uh, you can execute against that. Uh, that's fine. And we, we had a we had quite a fun application that we built in our venture lab. Uh, called CardsPal. We 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 sold that off uh, earlier this year, but it was uh, an app in Singapore where I'm sitting today, where a user of the app could incorporate all their payment cards and and get uh, advice on where they would get optimal reward points or where they could get a, a a discount through some offer on their DBS card or their Standard Chartered card or their Trust Bank card. And obviously, that the, the underlying technology to support that was was primarily just the network effect of people contributing uh, their, their data into a platform. But then, our ability, or CardSPAL's ability, specifically to to customize offers for individuals at a point in time, made it the most popular lifestyle app in Singapore for most of a two year period that the thing was up and running. But I think by the time we sold it, I think we had five hundred thousand users, which is in Singapore is quite a bit. Is that AI? Yeah, there was some AI. Uh, is it DLT? Not really. Were they smart contracts? I wouldn't say smart contracts, but the the app was trying to be very smart. Can you have a a, a smart bank account? Yeah, absolutely. And when I, when I look at the at the, at the mobile at the digital banks that we've launched, as well as the digital offerings in our own bank, we've got uh, you know tell us your risk appetites, tell us your you know the situation in your life, monthly outgoings, monthly incomings, uh, fixed and variable expenses, and tell us the parameters that you want to put on on your life and and our app will help guide you uh, including when you've hit your monthly spending limit on discretionary spend the card doesn't work anymore not our call your call right obviously you know the, the, you put in the code to override it but that's you know, the, the, is that a smart card yeah it's a smart card I I, I I i wouldn't call it sentient it's just it's a set of algorithms that we set or we've allowed our users to set for themselves to improve their ability to manage their money and to manage their lives. And uh, I think they'll get more and more human-like in terms of advice. I think they'll get more and more offering advice that are outside of the parameters that the the user set at the outset. So anticipating some of the questions that we might have asked had we known. uh, But we'll be very careful as we do that uh, about the the, the role that we play, which is as a service provider, not a parent uh, or a guardian or, uh, or a financial controller.
0: You say that you don't want to be the parent, but does it behoove you as the creator of an AI to instill a sense of values in that AI? And if so, how do you do that when you're working across so many different cultures?
2: Yeah, no, it's it's a big challenge. I'll I'll say we we started, you know, before we we launched our first AI models, and I think we were probably using AI and not calling it AI, but before we launched our first models, We launched an AI ethics committee. So, any AI application uh, has got to go through our ethics committee to have an an extra review layer around either unintended or unacceptable bias uh, that is creeping into the application by virtue of the data set that we're using. And we we, we all know the apocryphal stories of of, uh, embedded societal biases. I I don't have to go through that. And and, and I, I can't pretend that any committee can be 100% certain that we've expunged all bias all the time. But what we're doing is learning continuously to understand how we can protect ourselves and, and then our customers from these embedded biases in in large language models, and also the steps that we can take to continue to be able to screen these things better. So your question is is into now the the offensive side of that. Should there be a set of values that we're actively promoting? Uh, and if so, what are they? Because when you're dealing uh, in countries from the Americas to the Middle East, to Sub-Saharan Africa, to uh, everywhere in South Asia, ASEAN, and, and Greater China, what particular value set would we like to promote? And there are a few uh, that are universal. Uh, you know, we will build into our models an ability to spot money laundering, bribery, corruption, and universally disparaged things. It's not straightforward to identify a, a set of, of values that we may think are core to us but but may not be consistent with the various markets in which we operate or, or may not even may be controversial even inside our shop. So you know there are various conflicts in the world right now, there are major social issues in the world right now where there's no right answer. And we're not going to take it as as part of our responsibility to embed our view of the right answer on things that are controversial into AI models. Where you draw the line between those things that I mentioned up front, bribery, corruption, money laundering, human trafficking, sexual abuse or, or molestation. There's a whole bunch of things that we could all agree without much debate are universally bad. And our first AI applications were actually in our financial crime control unit. So spotting patterns or spotting data sets that suggests that there's a greater than, than average or greater than acceptable likelihood of uh, of a crime being committed or, or something that's in violation of our rules. And it's been highly effective. It's our obligation. So of course we, we make investments there. Uh, it's also the right thing to do and we don't really have any question about that.
0: A number of enterprises such as Bloomberg are rendering their IP and corporate expertise into large language models. That's the underlying technology behind services such as OpenAI and ChatGPT. Do you think that we might see banks follow suit and build their own proprietary LLMs to enhance their own operations or create new value to customers? I think it's
2: very tempting, but the uh, I think I think we'll be hard pressed to find uh, bodies of data that that are comprehensive enough inside a single organization to give the real benefits of a genuinely large language model. Uh, now, that said, there there could be either because a, a particular bank is so big or so big in a very particular area that we have all the data that we need to, to generate our own AI solutions. Uh, but I think the the vast majority of use cases is going to require a, a multi-organizational, multi-market, maybe multi-industry data set to best inform the, the large language model.
1: There are many narratives describing the contrast between East and West, and there's certainly some differences to point out and be respectful of. But the analysis of have suggest, seen suggests that China and the U.S. are actually becoming more and more alike. Is this something you're seeing? And are you seeing ideas beginning to converge between East and West?
2: Look, I, I think uh, China and the U.S. have some very important similarities. For starters, they're they're two of the countries that are most advanced technologically. Uh, in, in the case of U.S., uh, that has happened over a long period of time relatively organically through – Continuous innovation, and obviously then targeting products into a quite a large home market. Uh, but U.S. technology has found its way around the world. That uh, China has had a, has had an accelerated and much more focused industrial policy, that has uh, had the, the Chinese researchers and, and 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 businesses targeting very specific uh, areas of economic development, and we've seen the effect of that with with leading uh, positions in in many technologies now including many of the, the green or renewable power technologies uh, electric vehicles and, and a host of, of other important uh, new economy type sectors so I, I'd say the the end result has been two of the most advanced countries technologically but let's also keep in mind that that, that China as a country is, is is obviously by population much larger than the US but with a with a and a level of size of the economy that's about the same size uh so the the per capita wealth in China is only about a quarter of that in the US, which is, makes for a very big difference in terms of, of the way that they approach uh, problems and challenges of economic development. And the political systems are quite different, and the approach to industrial policy is is quite different. So I would uh, I would say that while there are some similarities in terms of, of current positioning for China and the US or East and West, that the differences are probably greater than the similarities.
1: Yeah. You touched on environmental policies in China, and, and probably by implication, environmental policies in the US. The U.S. has you know, talked about the Green New Deal uh, as an aspirational uh, exercise for some time. In China, do you see some of that actually taking taking root?
2: Yeah, I, I think China uh, is, is is evidenced as being very committed to their own green transition. Obviously, they're doing that against the backdrop of of, of a reasonably high level of economic growth, and which is increasing the demand for power. Uh, substantially. But nevertheless, they've uh, invested very heavily in, in renewable power technologies, solar and wind, very heavily in nuclear, and have made you know quite striking commitments to get to net zero by 2060, which, given the, the underlying growth in the economy and, and power consumption, is, is quite striking. Uh, the U.S. had fallen quite far behind in terms of, of certainly renewable power technology. And through the Inflation Reduction Act uh, that was passed by the Biden administration, there's a substantial investment not just into renewable power, but into, into other uh, green technology solutions, uh, whether that's investments in green hydrogen or uh, or carbon sequestration and storage, uh, or other cutting-edge research and r and R&D efforts. So the U.S. is determined to catch up, obviously a very large uh, home market, and U.S. technology has done quite well internationally once, uh, once developed. So uh, I suspect in the medium term, China and the U.S. will be giving each other a run for their money. Uh, as, as someone who's who's acutely focused on the, the contributions we can all make to uh, arresting the increase in temperatures above 1.5 degrees, I'm delighted for that competition.
0: I'd like to move on to um, another area where China and America will probably at some stage be in competition, and that is uh, China's CBDC. In October, China settled $90 million shipment of crude with eCNY, the, the digital random day. What do you think this means for banks like yours, which are pushing hard to establish digital rails for digital currencies in Asia? Where is the opportunity and where is the um, innovation that you guys are tapping into?
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's a big question. Like we, we've all seen lots of, of hype and, and lots of real activity in, in terms of you know, R&D activity and some, some pilots like the ESMY around digital currencies or uh, stable coins, central bank digital currencies. And sometimes it feels to me in, look of a, in search for a use case, uh, but I think there are some some quite reasonable use cases. And at the end of the day, uh, digital currencies properly deployed and, and incorporated within the, the, an appropriate ecosystem should be able to reduce fraud, you know, should be able to reduce the cost of settlement and, and, and the risk of settlement. Should allow for greater convenience for uh, for consumers, especially consumers who are interacting in the digital economy. And there will be many other other use cases that, that that people will develop through time. I think there are some some other use cases that are, I would say, yes, less universally embraced. You know, one is to to increase the ease with which surveillance can be undertaken, and in, in terms of, of you know financial crime compliance so, avoiding or spotting money laundering or or sanctions compliance or things like that the transparency that can be achieved with with a, a properly deployed digital currency of one description or other that uh, could help with uh, with surveillance and obviously surveillance is a double edged sword which can also be used to to infringe on what what some would consider to be uh, basic civil rights and uh, i think it's also properly executed and and with with use cases that are that are fully embraced uh, of course, it would have the effect of, of making more popular currencies other than the US dollar, uh, perhaps at the expense of the US dollar. So the example you cite of, of, a, of a cargo of, of crude oil being paid for with ECNY, I don't know what the use case was or what the, what the hoped for benefit was in that case. Uh, it may have been because it was easier or simpler, uh, it may have been just for the novelty value, uh, or it may have been because I think many buyers and sellers of goods, particularly in and around China would like there to be an alternative to the US dollar for the settlement of basic trade transactions and politicians diplomats uh c- citizens of the planet will have different views on whether that's a good thing or a bad thing but nobody can can uh, underestimate the, the the incentive for countries that have found themselves on the wrong side of the United States to find alternatives to the US dollar and and what's it mean for banks? Well, I mean, we are dealing in lots of different currencies today, and, and perhaps some of those currencies will be digital in the future. We want to make sure that we're able to satisfy our customers' needs uh, in terms of, of clearing and settling their trades. Uh, we want to make sure that that as stable coins or, or other digital currencies are, are invented and used, uh, that we can support them in our ecosystem and that we can uh, maximize the, the convenience value uh, and the other use case applications for digital currencies that uh, we would provide for fiat currencies. So We know that there's some some variations on the theme where uh, digital currencies could be a threat to some parts of of, uh, the profitability of banks. Let's take the obvious case. If a a central bank in a country mandates that all payments are made using digital currencies only, no more cash, uh, then eventually all deposits will move into digital assets, which are not Deposits in banks. Those are deposits in, in the central bank itself. Now every central bank has been very clear to say we don't want to displace the banking system. We want banks to be in the credit intermediation business, where banks take deposits and banks make credit decisions and bank, banks make loans, right? That's what central banks have said they want. And I think they they mean that. So they've I think very few of them have said we will limit the amount of money in circulation in digital form to X percent of bank deposits. The number that's often cited is, is 10 or 15%. Uh, But I think that's what they have in mind. And frankly, that's what they should have in mind if they want banks to continue in the credit intermediation business. Because alternatively, the central bank becomes a credit intermediary. And that's not a role that they uh, either have been or should be comfortable playing.
0: Thank you so much, Bill. We've got one more question for you. As you visit the FinTech festivals this month, what's the most interesting thing that you've seen? And who are you looking forward to meeting the most?
2: (laughs) To me, the, the most interesting, and this is going to sound like a bad answer, but, but the most interesting people to, to meet with in these things are the regulators. Because regulators in their in the ordinary course are allergic to innovation. It, it's, it, it feels like uh, something, it's just a risk to them against their regulatory objectives. But you put them in a fintech festival, especially when in Hong Kong and Singapore, the regulators are central to the promotion of the festival. So they're, they're in innovation mode because they have obviously want to capture a big chunk of the of the innovation ecosystem in their, in their respective markets. And I, I have a huge amount of time, in particular in Hong Kong and Singapore, for the, the balance that the regulators have shown between safety and soundness on the one hand and promoting innovation on the other, yeah, obviously with a with view to creating jobs and, and, and opportunities and good customer outcomes in their markets. I I find it very, very interesting to to get that that regulator perspective in a different environment than than the the environment that we often inhabit with them.
0: Thank you so much. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Breaking Banks Asia.
1: If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.